something funny, it's chives. And they're strong this morning. Whew. Hey, how's everybody doing? We're going to get ready to get into a section of scripture this morning that has one of the most outlandish sayings that Jesus ever said. But before we do, let's take just a moment to go to God in prayer, to clear our minds, to get everything ready so that we can accept his teaching this morning. Father, as we prepare our minds this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth, truth, Father, your word, as we open it up, we pray that our minds will be opened up so that we can understand what is in your word. May our eyes and ears be open so that we can see and hear the things that you have designed therewith. And Father, may we be challenged today by your word. And Father, we invite your spirit to be with us because he helps makes all things understandable, it tells us. And Father, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Prepare us now, Father, in his name we pray. Amen. All right, if you, if you brought your battle sword with you this morning, if you would open it up to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. You know, up to this point, Jesus has done a lot of things. But now, we're at his last week of life. Starting with chapter 21, we had the triumphal entry. And he came into Jerusalem, and he knows his time is at hand. He goes in, and the first thing he does then is cleanses the temple. And he sends a message to folks. And then he begins teaching, and he teaches a lot of things. He's under a lot of stress. This is a trying time. He doesn't have long. He's only got a couple of more days on this earth to get his message across of who he is. That the scribes and the Pharisees what they've, and the Sadducees, what they have been teaching is not the truth. What they've been portraying in their life to the community is not the truth, and he's been trying. And as he goes through chapter 22, he's teaching these things. And it says down about verse 34 in chapter 22 that after the Sadducees had asked him a question, it says that after he answered it, that he had put him to silence. And the Pharisees saw that the Sadducees had been silenced, and so now they say, It's our turn. And they start to ask him a few questions. And by the time you get to the last verse, I think verse 46 of chapter 22 of Matthew, it says that not only did he put them to silence, but it says that no one dared ask him a question from that day forward. You see, this was a serious time. Jesus was not taking any prisoners. He's only got a couple of days, and so he was teaching the truth in a way that was trying to put him to silence. And now we get to chapter 23, 
And in chapter 23, as it starts out, he has silenced the Sadducees, then the Pharisees, and then it says he spake to the multitude and to his disciples. So he's going to try to give them some things that's important before he leaves this earth. And this section of scripture is called the seven woes. And as I went through here, I counted eight woes. Not that anyone's counting, right? (laughs) What's one or two? If there's woes, I don't want more than one, let alone seven or eight. But he gets down through here and he starts giving these woes to them because the Sadducees and the Pharisees are sitting in the back taking notes while he's talking to the multitude. And he gets down to about verse 23. And he says, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. I see that Jesus didn't go to the school of political correctness. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You know, he's not making friends and influencing his people here, is he? He's got a direct message to them. And what does he say? He's not building rapport with his audience. Maybe the multitude he is because probably a lot of them didn't like these folks either. But they're sitting in the back and they're taking notes. And now he gets into his lesson and he says, You tithe your mint, your anise, and your cumin. What are those? Were those supposed to be tithed? No, to understand what they were supposed to tithe, we have to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 14. So if you would, turn to Deuteronomy 14. But he says, you hypocrites, you Pharisees, you're tithing these kitchen spices, these things that grow in pots outside of your homes. What were they supposed to do? Deuteronomy 14, we get down to verse 22. You'll see the offerings and the tithes that was supposed to be given. And it says, Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed, that the fields, not your pots, that the fields bring forth year by year. So there's something that year by year, as God blesses them, that they are supposed to give back as a tax. For a tithe was a taxation. It was not an offering. You have in the Old Testament tithes and offerings. And a lot of folks bring the tithes with us to this day. But what we do is we give free will offering. We pay taxes to the state and the federal government. Israel was a theocracy, and that meant that God ruled it. And so, with God ruling it, you have a group of people known as the Levites that were his people. And the Levites had no inheritance in the land we're going to see in a moment, so they didn't have fields to grow their food on. They served God in the temple, the tabernacle, and they took care of the priestly duties. And so the rest of the tribes supported them through this taxation, just as our taxes support the fire department, the police, the different things of the government and the military that protects us and intervenes for us. That's what this was. And it says, 
your fields. In verse 23, you're going to eat before the Lord thy God in the place that he will choose to place his name there. And your tithe will be of thy corn, which the word there means grains. So corn, barley, wheat, the different type of grains that provided their bread, their staff of life. He said, you're going to tithe that from your fields and of your wine and of your oil and then of the firstlings of your herds and flocks. Herds are big animals. That's your cattle and your oxen. Your flocks are your smaller animals, your sheep and your goats. So he said, these are the things that you're going to give. Why? Well, we start out with a purpose clause, meaning it says that. You give these things so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Why? Because he's going to tell you when you do as I ask you to, I will bless you in ways that will cause you to reverence me. That word for fear there is not the word for trembling, to be extremely frightened. It's the word that means to be in reverence, to be in awe of something. Like, wow, the Grand Canyon. I'm in awe of it. This is the word that's generally used for that type of thing. And God says when you give, you're going to see what I give back. And you will be in awe of what I can do with you. Now, this was a year-by-year thing, but I don't see pots, kitchen herbs, and spices there, did you? I saw corn, grains, I saw olive oil, and I saw wine. You remember we talked just a couple weeks ago about Caleb, the man named Dog, and when they went into the land, do you remember what they brought back? Grapes. One cluster of grapes two men had to hold on their shoulders as it supported that. God said, I have prepared a land for you flowing with milk and honey. He had already had these people to plant their vineyards, their olive trees, and everything for them. And when they go and take the land, the things are already there. It's a gift. And that's what God's saying here. All of life is a gift. Everything I give you is a gift. And out of that, when you return a portion, you are extremely blessed by that. But then if you look, if you're still in Deuteronomy 14, if you look down at the last two verses, those things they did year by year to support the, uh, the Levites. But in verse 28, it says, At the end of three years, you will bring forth another tithe of your increase that same year. So every third year, there was another 10% tax. So you had a 10% tax every year. Every third year, it was really 20%. Why did they do that? Verse 29. So that the Levite, because they have no inheritance with you, and the stranger that's in your gates, the fatherless and the widows... They are living amongst you. They are in your gates. And they can come. And they can eat. And they can be satisfied. Then. That the Lord thy God may bless you. In all the works of your hands. You see. There's never something asked. Without a promise given back. 
And that's our goal is to begin to stand upon the promises of God from his word for us. I learn a promise here that whenever I give to help back to the community, kind of like we talked about this morning with turkeys and hams and Thanksgiving baskets, isn't it? Whenever I give back a portion to those who are in need, to the fatherless, to the stranger, to the widows, God says, I can then bless your hands, the work of your hands far beyond, and you will learn to reverence me because you'll see how great I am. Now back to Matthew 23. That lays our groundwork as why is he hitting the scribes and Pharisees about their tithing? He says in verse 23 of 23, Oh, you hypocrites, you come before me with your offerings of kitchen spices. Not your fields, not your big things, not your oxen, not your fields of barley, but you come with your kitchen pots. You come with your mint. You come with your dill and your cumin. And you say, look how holy I am, because the Pharisees, that's why they're hypocrites. They are taking minuscule things that were not commanded to do and saying, look how righteous I am. Today, the Jerusalem Colts is going to play the Palestinian Titans. And I want sour cream and chive dip to go with my tater chips. So his wife would say, well, I, I need 18 sprigs of those chives to be able to make our dip. And he would go out to his little pot and he would meticulously count out 18 of those and give them to her. And then he would go marching to the temple making a big parade and a big statement, and he would go, look how holy I am there, God. Look at the abundance that I have given you back from my little garden spices. And he says, you hypocrites. Why does he use that word? He says, because you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Well, what's the weightier matters of the law? Well, first of all, it was your fields was the first thing. He didn't mention anything about your kitchen spices to make you appear that righteousness. But there's also what Jesus says, not what I'm going to tell you, but something that Jesus here says is weightier matters of the law. To find out what those are then, we have to look at the law. We have to go back. He says the weightier matters are judgment or justice, the weightier matters are mercy and faithfulness. So let's go take a look at these words because he doesn't have to explain them so they already understand. So what do these things mean? Let's go back. Let's start with justice. Let's take a look, if you would, at Proverbs. If you've got your Bibles and you want to go back to Proverbs 18, Proverbs is book of wisdom. So let's get some wisdom of God about this thing called justice and judgment. Proverbs chapter 18. Down about verse 5, I believe it is. It says, It is not good to accept the person of the wicked, to overthrow the righteous in judgment. Well, what does that mean? 
That means to play favoritism. The wicked here can be a lot of, man, a lot of things. It could be people who strong arm. So that whenever there's a judgment going to be handed out or someone has to make a decision, you play favoritisms because I'm afraid of them, what they might do if I don't do what they say. And so when you play favoritism to the wicked and the righteous get left out of what they should have had, God said that's not good. That is not justice or judgment in action which is a weightier matter of the law. Here's one that will surprise you as we go to uh, Proverbs 21, just three chapters over. Proverbs 21, this one really surprises me. It says in verse 3, to do justice and judgment. So there we see that those are interchangeable. One's a decision and the other one's the way you meet it out. And he says, justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Really? I thought my action before God as my sacrifices that I give, even down to my household herbs, is what's important. I thought that was. But here the word of God says, no. What is really important is the way you hand out justice and judgment to your neighbor, to those who are around you that you interact with day by day. Let's look at one last one. Let's uh, look at Malachi, all the way to the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, right before Matthew. If you hit Matthew or Mark, circle around and come back to Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5, God makes another statement about this subject of justice and judgment. And he says, I will come near to you in judgment. So I'm going to come. And I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against false swearers, against those that oppress the hireling of his wages, the widow, the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and that you do not fear me, the Lord of hosts. So what is justice? And what is judgment? Well, it says here, not to be any of these things, sorcerers. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you a little hint here. I was going to pass this one by and save it for another day when you talk about the fruits of the spirit versus the works of the flesh i may not be here another day so i'm going to i'm going to tell you now when it says the works of the flesh are these and one of the first ones it talks about is sorcery and witchcraft most people just read right over that and say that doesn't apply to me oh yes it does i'll save the big things if there is another day but do you know in Galatians chapter 5 when it talks about sorcery and witchcraft what, what the word is there? It's the word pharmakeia. It's Greek word pharmakeia which means pharmacy where we get our word for the distribution of drugs. And 
those things lead to witchcraft and sorcery. And so they matter. So yeah, we need to be aware of sorcery. We need to be aware of adultery because that's being faithful and God's using it in a spiritual sense here. Being faithful to me. And then he talks about uh, false witnesses. In other words, our interaction with our neighbor on how we, are we deceitful? Do we tell the truth? Are we good in that judgment? And then it goes right back to what these offerings were for, doesn't it? It talks about the stranger and the widow and the orphan in helping them. And he says, I will be a swift witness to this. So now back to Matthew 23, when Jesus talks there about the things that they are doing with their small little herbs and their little sacrifice, he said, you are missing the big picture here because these are the things that I expect in justice and judgment. And then he moves on to the next word, mercy. Mercy is ilios. It means charity. And it doesn't mean, oh, look at that poor fella. I wish I could help him. That's not what mercy is. Mercy is when you see that, you try to find a way to help. You become active in that. I'm not going to try to describe what Elios means. I'm going to let Jesus do it. Because he started that out, if you look at chapter 6 in Matthew, go back a few pages. He's on the Sermon on the Mount. This is early in his ministry. And he's standing on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking with them. And in chapter 6, he begins, Take heed that you do not your elios, your alms, your active giving. Take heed that you do not do that before men just to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father. But when you do your elios, when you do your acts of charity... Don't sound the trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets because they're going to have their glory right there. So this is Jesus' own definition of ilios, your alms, your charity that you do. Um, one other one, Acts chapter 3. I love this section, and I had not looked at it this way. In Acts chapter 3, you've got Peter and John. You remember Jesus is resurrected. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit filled the place and they taught the people. And so now they're all on fire for teaching about Jesus Christ and teaching the gospel and accepting Christ as your Savior. Don't rely on what other people are telling you. He died for your sins. You believe in Him. You are buried with Him in baptism and you receive a new walk of life. And they're going to the temple at the hour of prayer to teach those who are still in, in Judaism. They're trying to teach their brethren about Jesus Christ. And as they go there, it says that there's a man who is placed at the gate called Beautiful every day. He's been lame from his mother's womb. And he goes there expecting to receive elios, alms, charity. And 
Peter and John, when they looked upon him, he expected and asked of them these works of charity. And I love what Peter said. He said, he examined the situation and he gave him what he needed. He said, you don't need another pence or two from me, but anyway, silver and gold have I none. He said, that's not what you need. You need something else. You need your health back. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand and walk. And he pulled him up by the right hand, and the man stood up. That was seen. That man was actively seeking Elios. In the other position, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, when you do your Elios. So when he hits these scribes and the Pharisees with, you tithe the little things, but you've omitted the weightier matters, this is what he said and had in mind when he said justice, judgment, and mercy are the things that you should have done. Now when he says weightier matters, that word in the Hebrew is kavod, and kavod means to be heavy. It's like carry a lot of weight. The president of the United States, when he goes places and he says things, his word and his presence carries a lot of weight. And that's what this word means. There are things that carry a lot of weight with God. And the heavyweight stuff is not giving two sprigs of your household spice, but your heavy thing is to provide justice and mercy to your neighbor. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? Do you remember what he said? He said, that first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, all your being. But there's a second one that's like unto the first one, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself, right? And that's one scripture back. That's in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. But so he has already told him that this is what God expects. This is what carries a heavy weight. And the other half of the meaning of that word kavod for a heavy weight is glory. Because the one who carries the weight usually has glory around him. The president has a big entourage and has the White House and has the, the uh, big cars and that takes him in the Secret Service. He says that mercy and justice is, carries the weight, but it also carries the glory. Well, what do you mean? Well, because if I do the other things that we saw in the Old Testament of what people who didn't do justice and mercy was, things like lying, cheating, stealing, bearing false witness, lying to people, will that bring souls to Christ? Does that bring glory to God among my fellow man and my neighbors? No, not, not so far as I've seen. But what does? Mercy, justice, and judgment. You know, I read a book back in about 1981 by a man whose, whose church was really growing. He was in Tennessee, and his name was Ira North, and he wrote a book called Balance. 
I can't tell you what was in that book except for one thing that stuck with me. He said one morning as he was studying, there was a knock on his back door. He opened the door, looked down, and there was two young girls that had come and knocked on the door. He said, hi, why are you guys here? And they said, we's hungry. And he said, okay, I can take care of that. I can feed you. And as he got them some groceries, he said, can I ask why you knocked on my door here at this church building? Why did you know to come here and you didn't go somewhere else? He said that those girls said, because we heard that you are the church what cares for people. That is evangelism in action. Mercy and justice in the community with those who are in need, like it says, that is why you are an ambassador for Christ. We are the ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And New Life Church is the face of Jesus Christ in this community. And you win evangelism by how you treat people. First you serve God. Yeah, Jesus said when he scolded the Pharisees, he said you tithe all the way down to the little things, but you have omitted the heavier things of mercy and justice. But you know what he said as he kept on going? You should have done the latter. You should have done your mercy and justice, but not neglected the former. The relationship with God is like the cross of our Lord. It goes vertical. That's you and I and our relationship with God. But it goes horizontal as well. The second commandment, which is like the first, to love my neighbor as myself. And the reason I say all this is because the short time that I've been here with you, I want to commend you. Because the church at New Life, I feel, is trying to do that. I've been at a lot of places that don't do that. They're more worried about the two sprigs that they go parading around with my personal morality and my personal vertical relationship with God. But you bring... In, oh, given to people who are hungry and sick and needy. They had better come to church first. They had better do this and that. Well, no, I don't see stipulations placed here. He said, when you do this, you are doing evangelism. You are doing the things that bear a heavy weight in the community. And I see what happens on Wednesday night when we feed those young kids. Thursday night as well, every other Friday as well, every third or fourth Saturday as well. And I say thank you. God says thank you. Because you are therefore being the ambassadors to Jesus in your community. And you will have folks that will come knocking on this door saying, I heard that you are the church what cares for people. And then in the middle of all of this, Jesus makes his most outlandish statement that I have ever seen. He's sitting there watching them, and he says, 
You strain at gnats and you swallow camels. Wow, look at verse 24. You strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. How in the world did we get to gnats and camels from garden herbs and justice and mercy? Well, I've come to learn that when something is left in the passage, that there's something more to it. So if you will, turn to Luke 11. In Luke 11, it's what's called a parallel passage. Parallel passages means that we have four Gospels. And some of them, it's recorded the things that Jesus did in more than one. So it might be in Matthew and Luke or Mark and John or maybe even all three or four of them. So when we go to Luke 11, we see a different angle on here because this parallel passage tells us the setting that Jesus says that in. Starting in verse 37, we're going to see the woes again. But this is Luke's version of what he saw from standing in another corner. And it says that as Jesus had spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. So now we are going to the setting of dining with the Pharisees that he has just scalded. And he went in and sat down to meet. And the Pharisees saw that he didn't wash his hands. And they are saying, oh, he's unclean. So they're trying to tell our Lord that he's unclean, and he can read their thoughts, and he's looking at them and saying, no, you are unclean. That's a man-made law tradition that you are handed down. I'm talking about the word of God. And so then he starts going in verse 40. You fools, did not he that made that which was without make that which was within? But rather, when you give your alms, so now we're on this same topic again, as you have, behold, all things are clean. But woe to you, Pharisees, you tithe your mint, your rue, and all manner of herbs and spices, but you pass over judgment, and you pass over the love of God. You ought to have done these and not leave the other undone. So now we can see why Jesus is beginning to talk about gnats and camels in Matthew because they're sitting down at dinner. And now I have transformed my planter into a wine goblet. And as they would be sitting at dinner, imagine a group of Pharisees sitting at dinner. You don't want to swallow a gnat because gnats love wine. They would like nothing better to hold a big pool party in here and be splashing around. Now, besides of going, ooh, yuck, I don't want to drink that, as being why they didn't want to do it, there's something deeper. But they had, they were so meticulous in their actions that they had a real intricate set of filters and lids so that gnats could not get into the pitchers and into their goblets. And so they're sitting here dining and they would go, Jesus would be sitting there, and they'd look, and then put their filter back on, take a drink, put their lid on, take another bite, say a word, check it out, put their filter on, take a drink. They were trying to strain the gnats out of their drink. And if you can imagine five or six or eight of these guys all, all doing this all the time, how comical it is. And he's sitting back, and he says, 
not only have you missed the big picture, you're missing it here again. You're straining at gnats and swallowing camels. What does he mean? Again, you go back to the old law. Let's look at uh, Leviticus 11. We'll be getting ready to close here in a minute, Rick. Leviticus 11. Sometimes you just got to keep rolling. <laughs> Leviticus 11. This is the chapter on clean and unclean foods. We go down to verse 20. It's the section on clean and unclean insects. And in verse 23, it says, well, verse 22, he tells you what you can eat. There's the uh, locust and the bald locust after his kind. Now, I know that that's wolfing a craving on you. I'm almost done, so you can go eat. But you can have all the locusts that you want this afternoon, okay? John the Baptist was okay with locusts and wild honey. But then in verse 23, it says, All other flying, creeping things which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. Guess what these flying, creeping things with four feet are? Gnats. So there's a reason besides just, yuck, I don't want to drink gnats. Imagine you're a Pharisee. You are trying to be so ultra pure with your morality to God. You don't want to take a gnat. So you put strainers and lids on your goblets, and you check every time you get a drink. And I even heard that some would drink with their teeth clenched so that their teeth would be another form of a strainer that they could pick them out and not swallow the gnat because they didn't want to be unclean. But look up at verse 4 of Leviticus 11. Nevertheless, now we're talking about land creatures. Nevertheless, those that you shall not eat of them that chew the cud and divide uh, the hoof as the camel, because he chews the cud but divideth not the hoof, therefore... He is unclean to you. This is where you get gnats and camels from. The largest unclean land animal versus the smallest little creeping thing. And he says, when you try to take your individual morality down to the smallest thing, an herb or a gnat, but you omit your neighbor, loving them as yourself, you've strained a gnat, but you've swallowed the camel. You've swallowed the weightier things of mercy, judgment, and faithfulness to me on what I asked you to do. So folks, I commend you for the works that we're doing in this community. I would urge everybody to participate and to get involved in loving the neighbor as yourself, being an ambassador for Christ, and therefore we will evangelize Paragon and all of our surrounding communities because then they will know that we are the church that what cares for folks. Rick, I turn it over to you. <clears throat> surrender all to him I 
Trust him in his prayer. 